If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn with me please to John chapter 3 as we are reading a well-known passage, Jesus talking to Nicodemus. And you'll find it on page 1649, page 1649 of the church Bible. Back at the beginning of January, we introduced a new series of studies in the Gospel of John. And over these last two weeks, we've been steadily making our way towards John chapter 3. And so this morning, we come to, as I said moments ago, that well-known passage of Jesus talking with Nicodemus. Now, most of you are aware that John's Gospel is a little different from the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they're called synoptic because they're seen through the same optic. And so they follow a very similar chronology. But John is very different. And in chapters 3, 4, and 5, John focuses on events in the ministry of Jesus when he spends a protracted time talking to individuals about the love and the grace of God and how to know his Father. And so we come this morning to chapter 3 at verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. Let me ask you this morning to use your imagination. Let me encourage you to think back to when you were 25 years old. You were physically fit. You 
were at the peak of health and a good close friend asks you if you would like to join him on a walk on the Appalachian Trail. And of course, immediately you think, well, tell me a little more about it. And he said, well, we plan to start at Charlie's Bunyan in Tennessee. We'll walk 10 miles that day. We will camp overnight. We will walk back 10 miles the next day. And it will be a wonderful adventure. He encourages you to come along. And eventually you say, well, okay. Then you start to consider, am I up to walking 20 miles? And you look up Wikipedia and you discover that the Appalachian Trail is 2,200 miles long. It is the longest trek anywhere in the world. It goes through 14 states. And as you continue to read and become familiar with the Appalachian Trail, you also discover that it passes through some small rural towns. And in fact, when you look at the map, your trail passes through a small community or at least adjacent to it. And so that day you are up early, you set off, you drive to Charlie's Bunyan, you make sure you have all the equipment and resources you need and off you go. And about seven miles into your trek, you pass a small community and here is a couple out in their garden. And they wave and smile and say, good luck, hope the weather holds and off you go. And as you're out of sight, the couple turn to each other and say, did you see what they were wearing? I'm not sure what they were wearing is going to work. The weather forecast later in the day is for heavy rain, prolonged rain, and it didn't look as if either of them had much of a rain jacket with them. Then the other one in response says, well, actually, it's going to get cold tonight. The temperature's going to drop quite significantly. It didn't look to me as if they had enough warm clothes. And as they have that conversation in their mind, the problems you are facing are entirely hypothetical. Because for them, if it gets cold, they will go indoors and turn the heating up. If it rains, they will snuggle in front of a fire. If they need food to eat, they go into the kitchen. And for them, all that you are facing is hypothetical. But for you, on this trek, it is immensely practical problems you face. And over these Sundays together, as we begin to follow the trail of the love and grace of God through the Gospel of John, we will from time to time come across a number of significant questions. And for you, these will be immensely practical. As we open up God's Word, as we hear Him speak to us, as again He captures our heart, as He refreshes and renews us, He will also resource us and equip us for all that this year has ahead for us. And so with all of that in mind, let's come to John chapter 3. If you weren't with us the last two Sundays, let me give you a brief word of introduction. Earlier I mentioned that John's Gospel is very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke in a number of ways. In the opening chapters of John, many of you know, John does not have an infancy narrative. There are no wise men, there's no mention of shepherds, there's no mention of an innkeeper or Mary or Joseph. It's not there in John. 
John, in fact, as you know, begins with that absolutely spectacular prologue. It is breathtaking in its immensity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then, as John begins to unpack and focus on timeless truths, eternal mysteries, he then begins to focus on the lives of individuals. And we saw it over these last couple of Sundays. Last Sunday, we touched very quickly on Peter and Andrew, and we focused on Philip and Nathaniel. And here again, as you get into chapter 3, John focuses on this interview between Jesus and Nicodemus. Also in John, there's no record or no formal record of the actual baptism of Jesus. John the Baptist references it, but there is no telling of the baptism. Secondly, there's no mention in John's Gospel of Jesus being tempted in the desert for 40 days. There's no parables. There's no Sermon on the Mount. There's no account of the Transfiguration. But there is these prolonged sections where Jesus begins to probe into the life of individuals. He begins to open up their heart. And we see exactly that right here. And notice how he begins. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night. The question, of course, uppermost in our minds is this. Why does Nicodemus come at night? What is going on that he would do that? Secondly, Why would a significant individual, a member of the Jewish ruling council, a man who, as Jesus refers to later on in verse 10, he refers to Nicodemus, in fact, as Israel's teacher. The translation could well be, you are the teacher of Israel. Nicodemus was the equivalent of the president of Princeton Seminary. Perhaps in today's language we would think of him as being the head of divinity for Yale or Harvard. He was a nationally known figure, someone of significance. This last week I learned a new phrase which apparently you have known for most of your life, but it was brand new to me. And I came across the phrase, a grand poobah. I had never heard that before, and I asked someone, what on earth is a grand poobah? And they said, it's right up there with muckety-muck. So you, if you have a sense of what a muckety-muck is and a grand poobah, you have a sense of they are someone of significance. I have to confess that from time to time I find myself invited to events of significance and importance and sometimes I'm asked to speak, sometimes I'm participating in the opening prayer but I never think of myself as a grand poobah and occasionally I hear of people talking about me as I'm passing them and they usually say there is that strange Irish guy and so that's the kind of level I operate at. But here is Nicodemus, 
member of the Jewish ruling council, national figure, the teacher of Israel. And of course, he's asking the question. He comes to him at night and says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing unless God was working through him. Let's pause right there. John has carefully constructed his gospel. He is, as you know, probably in his early to mid-80s when he's writing. He has taken a long time to carefully construct and put together all he wants to say. And when Jesus, when he says Nicodemus came to him at night, does that mean he came when it was dark? It absolutely means that. But John's use of language is often symbolically laden. And John would contrast the light of day and the darkness of night. In fact, later on in the passage it says, Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead. Now, does that mean they preferred when it was night? No. He's talking about spiritual darkness. And John is hinting here at a spiritual darkness going on. And so when he says, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night... And notice what he says, we know. Now when he says we, what is Nicodemus meaning? Probably the Jewish ruling council, probably Nicodemus and his peers, probably the religious leaders of the day. We know you have come from God. And of course he calls him rabbi. It's a term of endearment. It is a compliment that here is arguably one of the great religious leaders of the day, quietly at night approaching this wandering rabbi from Galilee who is little more in the eyes of Nicodemus than a layperson. So that will give you a sense of what's taking place here. This is a significant development in chapter 3. This is a conversation that most of us, I think, wish we could stand in the shadows and listen in on. And in essence, Nicodemus is saying this. Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God had not sent him. So Nicodemus immediately recognizes that Jesus is several leagues above the ordinary lay preacher. And in essence, he's saying, if you have come from God, are you the Messiah? That's what he's hinting at. Are you the one who's going to usher in the kingdom of God? And Jesus turns the entire conversation around, almost as if to say, Nicodemus, The focus shouldn't be on, am I about to usher in the kingdom of God? But rather, Nicodemus, are you in the kingdom of God? Do you understand the enormity 
of the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, do you know what it means to have a relationship with him? A relationship that is profound. A relationship that is deeply personal. A relationship that's transformative and renewing. A relationship that impacts the heart and soul and mind and spirit. Nicodemus, do you know anything of this? That's the response that Jesus is making and continues through the conversation. And notice what he says next. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And Nicodemus pushes back, how can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And you can see immediately that Nicodemus is struggling here. He's wrestling with what is taking place. He doesn't grasp the enormity of what Jesus is talking about. What is happening here? How can this be? Nicodemus is thinking on a physical level. For Nicodemus, his days are made up with meeting colleagues in ministry, A religious life that is determined by duty and obedience and rules and regulations. His understanding of God is based on what to pray, when to pray, what to eat, when to eat, what to wear, when to wear it focused on holidays and feast days and festivities. And the focus is on religious observance of duty. And here is Jesus introducing to Nicodemus that a living faith is not defined or determined by what to wear and when to wear it. Neither is it defined by what to eat and when to eat it, or what to wear and when to wear it. Jesus is going so much deeper. He's talking about that profound relationship that the Gospels talk about again and again and again. And Nicodemus is having a hard time beginning to even work that through. And in his mind, he thinks Jesus is talking about a physical birth. And Jesus is talking of spiritual things. Many years ago, when I first learned to drive, my driving instructor, after those first few weeks of learning in parking lots and quiet side roads, would take you onto a main road. And he would say, now, Richard, when you are changing lanes, there are several things you need to do. And of course he talked it through with me in theory. And he would say, when you're about to maneuver, Check your mirrors, then signal, then maneuver. And that was drummed into me. Mirror, signal, maneuver. In other words, when you're checking lanes, you check your rear view mirror. You look behind to see what's there. After you've checked your rear view mirror, you check your right wing mirror. You check your left wing mirror. 
And then finally, before you move, you quickly look over your shoulder to see if anyone is right there. Because in the mirrors, sometimes have blind spots. They can show you far back, but if someone is sitting right there on your shoulder, you can't see them. And how many of us over the years when we've been driving have had a quick glance and thought, thank goodness I checked before moving. There's a blind spot. And for Nicodemus, a deep, profound, personal relationship with God was his blind spot. Nicodemus was absolutely convinced that his relationship with God was determined by his race, his circumcision, his obedience to rules and regulations and feast days and festivals. And Jesus is taking him so much further. Jesus is explaining to him the transformation of the human heart. He is explaining to him that when God speaks into an individual's life and we respond, the only way to respond is through personal submission and surrender to his rule and reign in every aspect of our lives. When a person is touched by the call of God and responds to the gospel, what they discover is this. They have a new appetite and new desires, new motivations. Worship becomes important. The reading of God's word is food for their soul and they are transformed. That's what's going on in this passage and Nicodemus doesn't see it doesn't see it he can't grasp what is taking place right here now you may be sitting there this morning and saying now Richard I hear what you're saying I understand what you have explained to me and I've sometimes wondered about this passage but here in Greenville today in the 21st century our focus is not on when to pray and what to pray. It's not on feasts and festivities. It's not on sacrificial lambs at a temple. It's not on what to wear and when to wear it. So how on earth does this passage relate to me in any way? Well, let me try and bring it into the 21st century. Because it may just be that in your mind, Your faith consists of little more than being a member of a church. You may even say at one time in years gone by, I was a member of a Sunday school. I sang in the choir. In fact, I served two or three years as a deacon. I thoroughly enjoyed it. None of that is mentioned in this passage. We're often tempted to make the secondary primary and the primary secondary. And our faith is in church membership. It's in activity in a church. It's in attendance. So let me ask you this morning, exactly as Jesus did here, emphatically ask the question, do you understand and grasp the wonder of what it means to have a living relationship with him. Could you put your hand on your heart this morning and say, Richard, he means everything to me. 
He doesn't just lead and guide and direct my life. He doesn't just put his hand upon me, but he is my Savior. I love him. He's transformed me. I speak to him each day. When I open up his word, he speaks to my heart and he brings renewing grace. He brings refreshment. He enables me to fall deeply in love with him and walk with him. That's what's going on here. That's exactly what's happening. Now how do we conclude this morning and wrap all of this up? And if you worship with us regularly on a Sunday morning, you will know there are times on a Sunday morning when I will say, now, in the week ahead, let me give you a challenge. Let me give you something to do. Well, this morning, rather than give you something to do, let me give you something to be. As this passage develops and Jesus goes further and further in his conversation with Nicodemus, he moves, of course, to what is arguably the best known passage in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's the crux of this passage. And if a gift is received and is a reflection of the giver, Here we see the unfathomable depths of the love of God. He didn't send an angel or a prophet. He sent his only begotten son, whom he had loved from eternity past into our world that we might come to know him and trust him and be transformed by him. That's why he came and he came to be sin for us. Not just a good example, not just to lead and guide and direct our lives, not simply to call us to a moral lifestyle, but to transform us, to draw us into a relationship with himself, to have that spiritual experience of a heart and mind and soul and spirit transformed by him to be born again. That's what's going on here. And if I am asking you to be something this week, let me encourage you with these words. Be amazed. Be thrilled. Shake your head in incredulity that the living God loved you so much. He sent his son into our world that we could know him and walk with him day by day by day by day. Be grateful for his immeasurable love. Be appreciative of the immensity of his grace. Live in awe at the expanse of his forgiveness. Enjoy him. 
Delight in him. Give thanks to him. Be amazed. Be incredulous at all that he has done for you. And please remember this. That in the year ahead you may find yourself in a situation so difficult that you are overwhelmed with fear and doubt and uncertainty. You may find yourself tempted to say, it is so much easier not to follow him. It is so much easier not to live and seek after righteousness. It is so much easier not to be determined to live a holy life. It may be so much easier, but it will never be better. Never be better than walking with him. It will never be more significant. It cannot possibly be more fulfilling. And don't be surprised that in the midst of those difficulties and fears and uncertainties, when the weather grows cold, that he doesn't walk along beside you, equipping you and resourcing you to live out your faith day by day by day. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this remarkable passage of Scripture. And this morning we ask and pray that in your unprecedented love for us, on those days when we are overscheduled and exhausted and stretched to the limits by fatigue and uncertainty, we will experience your grace for us. Oh, Father, draw us into a never-increasing relationship with you that we will understand once again the immensity of your love for us. Father, help us, please, to be yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.